first scripture this morning is Psalm 139, verses 1 through 10. O Lord, you have searched me, and you know me. You know me when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going and my lying down. You are familiar with my ways. Before a word on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. You hem me in behind and before. You have laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go to for your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. I rise on the wings of the dawn. I if I settle from afar on the side of the sea. Even where your hand will guide me, your right hand will lead me fast. Thank you. You may be seated. Our second scripture reading is found in John 1. I'll be reading verses 43 through 51 uh, with the story that was talked about just a few minutes ago in the children's sermon. John 1, beginning with verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him about whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus, son of Joseph, from Nazareth. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. When Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him, he said of him, Here is truly an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael asked him, Where did you get to know me? Jesus answered, I saw you under the fig tree before Philip called you. Nathanael replied, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus answered, Do you believe because I told you that I saw you under the fig tree? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Very truly I tell you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. There's an expression that says revenge is a dish best served cold, suggesting that revenge is more satisfying if enacted when unexpected. I would submit to you that we could say the same thing about irony, that irony is a dish that is also best served cold. I would not expect you to remember my opening illustration of the It's Not About You sermon a year ago. If you do, I'm impressed. I didn't remember it either until I looked it up. Irony. Matt Lauer had just celebrated his 20th anniversary as host of the Today Show. There was an entire sh show devoted to his tenure. And special guest hostess Katie Couric at one point said something to the effect, Matt, today it's all about you. Wow, what a difference a year makes. We might say that Matt Lauer is the poster child in a year of the most despicable it's not about you moments. In all the years I've been preaching this sermon, and this is the 12th iteration, I don't think we've experienced a year focused more on the mindset that everything revolves around me. 
Of course, this is not a new mindset. It's been around for a while. Over the past decade, we've talked about Herod the Great, Ananias and Sapphira, Joseph, the father of Jesus, the three wise men, John the Baptist, Moses, the church at Corinth, James and John. The original sermon dealt with the crowds surrounding Jesus during his public ministry. Some of these biblical characters had figured out that it's not about you, and others had not. Today we add another to the list, Nathaniel. I go back and read the first couple of verses from the message, Maxine. The next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. When he got there, he ran across Philip and said, come follow me. Philip's hometown was Bethsaida, the same as Andrew and Peter. Philip went and found Nathanael and told him, we found the one Moses wrote of in the law. The one preached by the prophets. It's Jesus, Joseph's son, the one from Nazareth. Nathanael said, Nazareth, you've got to be kidding. Nazareth, you've got to be kidding. Nathanael's reply in the message is a little more gentle than other translations as far as I'm concerned. What we typically read is, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? It's a derisive statement. It's judgmental. It borders on being xenophobic, a fear or distrust of anything foreign or strange. Nazareth? Really? So what would lead Nathaniel to believe that nothing good could come from Nazareth? Well, we actually don't know much about the small village of Nazareth. It is barely, if ever, mentioned in first century documents other than scripture. The little we know is speculative and not very impressive. Nazareth was a small community of probably less than 500 people. Nazareth was likely located not far from a major east-west trade route that ran from Egypt to Asia called the Via Maris. Let's just say you're driving down the interstate and you see an exit with the name of a town but you don't see anywhere to stop for a break. No gas stations, no bathrooms, no restaurants. Well, you do. Well, you keep going. That little town would be Nazareth. Nazareth was situated in the hill country of Galilee, a region of fishing and farming that was also known in scripture for its distinctive regional accent and for having a large population of Gentiles, a high number of immigrants, foreigners, resident aliens. Oh my goodness. Well, there you go. Archaeological evidence also shows that Nazareth may have sat somewhat in the shadow of the nearby city of Sepphoris, which was being rebuilt as a regional capital around the time of Jesus. Sepphoris was the place where the action was, if you will. Sepphoris was the place with the multiplex cinema or maybe at least the Roman theater. Sepphoris was the place where the young people went off to work and find jobs. Nazareth, well, apparently nothing much happened in Nazareth. Nothing certainly to make the news. So when Philip says, we've found the Messiah and he's from, well, 
the insignificant agricultural village of Nazareth. Can you not hear Nathaniel audibly sigh and say while rolling his eyes, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nazareth, you've got to be kidding. Bunch of hicks and hillbillies, mountain people. Nazareth is of no significance, and no one who hails from Nazareth can be of any significance either. You know, it's quite possible that in his upbringing, Nathaniel had never been told, it's not about you. But while we're on the subject of geography and where people are from, I would suppose a good question to ask would be, where was Nathaniel from? Mm. We know that Philip was from Bethsaida. Scripture tells us, city of Andrew and Peter. Scripture didn't bother telling us where Nathaniel was from, though. Well, Nathaniel was from Cana in Galilee. Now, I challenge you to research the biblical town of Cana. Good luck. You will be led on a wild goose chase. It could have been here. Or it could have been there. It could have been called this. Or it could have been called that. It could have been this particular Cana. Or that particular Cana. Or this Cana over here. We're not sure where it was. But the one thing you will find. The first thing you will find. Do a Google search and you will see this. It's certainly not going to be that Nathaniel was from there. What you will find is the same thing that every Sunday school scholar knows about Cana, and that would be, anybody? They have, they have big weddings there. It's, <laughs> it would not be that Nathaniel's from there. It would be that that's where Jesus did his first miracle, changing the water into wine at the wedding feast. Ironic, isn't it? The most important thing we know, the one thing that'll come up first on your Google search that ever happened in Cana happened because of this one who came from that lowly and insignificant hill village of Nazareth. Of course, in reading the rest of our story from John today, we see that Nathaniel eventually came around when he actually went to see Jesus for himself, he changed his tune. But what was behind his initial reaction? What was behind his initial response? Well, there are likely to be many ways to look at it. One, however, would be that we're talking about a rivalry. A rivalry. One definition of rivalry is competition for the same objective or for superiority in the same field. We most often hear of rivalries in the sports world. Ole Miss, Mississippi State, Florida, Florida State, Michigan, Ohio State, Alabama, everybody else. <laughs> During its heyday, Olive Branch High School's rivalry, South Panola, us versus them, right? standing room only. Rivalries can be fun. 
Rivalries can be exciting, especially when you're on the winning side. But that's the thing about rivalries. There always has to be a winning side. There always has to be superiority. With Nathaniel, there was no doubt in his mind that Cana was superior to Nazareth. Thus, his display of superiority when told that Jesus came from Nazareth. When there's a rivalry, folks, it's always going to be about me. About how I can best the other. About how much better I am than the other. About how superior I am over the other. Of course, we don't have to look very far in our society to see this type of thinking, do we? I mean, goodness gracious, the federal government shut down this weekend because two political parties insist on coming out on top, on besting each other, and therefore there aren't any winners until one of them falls and the other one wins. We could describe the entire political landscape over this past year in this way. One way of thinking of the Me Too movement would be in terms of rivalry. Men trying to show their dominance or superiority over women by sexually harassing and assaulting them. The world around us is me first more than ever. And so what is a believer to do? under these circumstances. What does this mean for the follower of Christ? From time to time, it's good just to go back and look at some of the words of Jesus. Jesus said, whoever wants to be first must be servant of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He said, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Jesus said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me for whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, to win it all, to always be on top, and yet forfeit their own soul? He said, you've heard it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus said, so in everything, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is a common thread 
that weaves itself among the sayings of Jesus. And that thread is the removal of any sense of rivalry. You see, life in Christ is not about superiority, it's about servanthood. Life in Christ is not about besting the other, it's about humbling oneself. Life in Christ is not about fearing the foreigner, it's about welcoming the stranger. Life in Christ is not about having to win, it's about losing oneself. Life in Christ is not about defeating the rival, but loving the enemy. In short, life in Christ is not about me first. It's about living a life centered on God's desire for me. I quoted this passage from Philippians a few weeks ago, and it is once again appropriate as we conclude an It's Not About You sermon. Paul writes, if there is any encouragement in Christ any consolation from love, any sharing in the spirit, any compassion and sympathy, make my joy complete. Be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Let the same mind, let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. Have the mind of Christ who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited. But he emptied himself. Christ emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in human likeness, being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. So what is a follower of Christ to do? We are to remind ourselves, it's not about me. And it's not about you. It's about the one who loves us and gave himself for us. The one we follow and the one that we try to do like he did. Let's pray.